2001, a reality television show called The Tigers of Money debuted in Japan. It was created by Nippon TV and distributed by Sony, and the show did pretty well, lasting for three years in that format and on that network, before the exclusive rights to the show's format were bought up by the BBC, allowing them to rebrand the concept for UK audiences as Dragon's Den in 2005. An attempt was made to spin the show off for the Australian television market that same year, but ratings for the Australian version of the show were poor, so after one season, it was discontinued. That flop, though, was not representative of the format's performance elsewhere around the world. Since 2005, the Dragon's Den concept has been adapted for nearly 30 countries, from Afghanistan to Finland, with both French and English versions in Canada, and slight changes to the format in each location. The main distinction being between the types of contestants and hosts, and the terminology used for the pseudo-hosts, who are not technically hosts, but actually investors who may give money to contestants in exchange for a share of their companies. In the United States' manifestation of this format, the investors are called sharks, and the show is called Shark Tank. In Sri Lanka, the show's title translates to Wall of Tuskers, while in Romania, the title translates to Lion's Arena. In all cases, the implication is that these are savvy business people listening to the stories and offerings of less experienced business people who may garner investments from these sharks, lions, dragons, if they see potential in their inventions, services, or brands that are being presented. It's a relatively simple concept, and that's probably part of why it's been so successful. Also key to its success, according to several media publications that report on such things, is that the format has, over time, been adjusted so that the business idea presenters who are looking for investments get a broader spotlight, showing something of their journey, the walls that they're running up against and trying to climb, and what's at stake during this presentation. The presentation at the center of the show's conflict is meant to dramatize the process of business owners and startups seeking investment capital from venture capitalists, a type of investor that focuses on this sort of investment opportunity. After the business person or inventor has presented their case, the VCs on the show's panel ask questions and either say why they are not investing or make a handshake agreement offer with terms that vary based on the concept, their specialty, and the region in which the show is being broadcast. Reportedly, about 20% of the deals made on the show are not executed, sometimes due to what the investor learns later, based on their due diligence investigations into the product or company or entrepreneur, or based on their own hands-on experience, which is more than they're typically able to do live on air. Nine out of ten times, though, it's apparently the entrepreneur who backs out of the deal that was made on air either because they have the chance to think it through once the cameras are off and they decide it wasn't actually that great a deal, or they decide they can do better, get more from other investors, or in some cases because they were actually only appearing on the show for publicity purposes to begin with, and thus garnering investment was not the point. Getting in front of the often massive TV audience was the point. And in many places around the world where this format is still shown, the audience is massive, and increasingly so. 
in the United States in particular, viewing numbers have inflated over the years. And as I record this, they are newly airing season 11 of the American version of the show, with average audience numbers in the 4 million range. Down from previous seasons, but still quite strong in the desirable 18 to 49 age demographic, and competing favorably against other shows airing in the same prime viewing time slot on other networks. It makes a sort of sense that part of the incentive for going on this show, which is ostensibly about investment, has become about something else entirely publicity. Many of the people who have been involved with the American version of it in particular have also been involved with QVC, the leading TV-based home shopping network, and As Seen on TV, which is a company predicated on infomercials and direct response mail-order sales, marketing methods that may seem a little outdated in the age of Instagram influencers and click-to-buy-everything, but which still does mounds of business and which translates well to the world of reality television. The so-called Shark Tank Effect has been known to increase the revenue of businesses that appear on the show from 10 to 20 times their usual. What I'd like to talk about today is venture capital, venture capitalists, and how this niche within a niche of the investment world has been reshaping the world of business worldwide. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The New Yorker, and it's entitled, Is Venture Capital Worth the Risk? Before we get into the details of that piece, let's talk for a moment about what venture capital actually is. The word venture refers to some kind of risky, perhaps even dangerous undertaking, with the implication that the outcomes might be worth the risk but that it could also end badly. Venture capitalism is thus named because it's considered to be quite risky compared to other types of investment. And indeed, the success rate for such investments has typically been fairly abysmal. Most venture-style investment outfits only make money on one out of ten of their plays, and one out of nine at the more focused, relatively successful funds. And as a consequence, they often need to make high rates of return on those that do pay out. 10x is the term often applied to such situations because these investors need to make back 10 times the money they invested in one out of 10 of every investments they make just to break even, to cover the losses on the other bets that didn't pan out. Ideally, they actually want to make more than that because the nature of these setups is that they're generally not investing just their own money, but investing the resources of a fund which they manage. Almost always some of that fund will be their own money, but usually the majority of it will be money put into the pot by other entities, and the VCs will be trying to earn a return on somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% minimum, which is far higher than you can generally expect to get playing safer bets, like mutual funds and bonds, but which is a payout that justifies the risk taken by those who provide the money for this fund. So who provides that money? Other private investors, but also insurance companies, university endowments, foundations of various kinds, pension funds, both private and governmental, and other investment vehicles, including something that's similar to an exchange-traded fund, which lumps stocks together and allows people to invest in the resultant portfolio. But in this case, instead of an ETF, what you end up with is a private equity FOF, which stands for Fund of Funds, which means that entities that manage portfolios of assets that people can invest in will sometimes specialize in venture capital, 
and their clients can invest in their portfolios of holdings in startup companies. Over the years, a fairly standard but not universal cycle has emerged out of this sub-industry within the larger financing industry that begins when a founder or co-founders have an idea and come up with a rough business plan and ends with some kind of exit, which refers to the end point for VCs and which could mean an initial public offering, or IPO, a mechanism for offering shares of the company on the stock market, which allows funders to sell their shares to other people who want them, ideally, for them, at a profit, a trade sale, which is usually some kind of merger with another company or an acquisition by another company, which would mean having the company bought out by a larger player, or merging with another entity to increase the overall value of everyone's holdings, or selling off their shares via what's called the private equity secondary market, which is sort of like a private stock market for companies that are not on the public stock market yet, or might never end up on the public stock market. So selling equity, which is part ownership of a company, to other investors. And you often have to be well-moneyed to play in that particular court, and usually have to have more credibility as a business person than you would need to just buy some stocks or index funds or something like that because there are relatively few owners, each with relatively more say over the destiny of the company in question at that point in a company's timeline. Looping back around to the beginning of that cycle, though, after the founder or co-founders come up with their idea and a rough business plan, if they're interested in getting funding, rather than sticking with what's often called bootstrapping, which means basically self-funding and making the business model financially sustainable sooner rather than later, aiming to make money rather than grow as quickly as possible, if they're interested in taking the funding route instead, they'll generally take part in some kind of accelerator program or get some kind of seed funding, which may take the shape of an angel investment, which refers to an investment made very early in the process, way before most investors would touch such a bet, or through some kind of crowdfunding, like Kickstarter, which allows a large number of non-investors to make smaller investments generally in exchange for a product or service early on. The money is provided up front for a product that has yet to be made very often, so they might take $100 from a 1,000 people, so the company can produce their first run of shoes or bags or whatever, but they wouldn't be able to make that first run without that initial injection of money from those crowdfunders. So that crowdfunding effort allows them to become the business that they want to become, based on some kind of outline rather than an existing business. Accelerators usually take the shape of programs that allow investors to provide some hands-on and some infrastructural assistance to startup founders, alongside, potentially, some funding money as well. But generally, this is more of a pathway to investment rather than a full investment plan, meaning if you're an investor wanting to get first dibs on investing in the hot new whatever, you could offer founders some office space, free coffee, connections to mentors and other founders, and a bunch of tools and education in exchange for a small portion of their company, and the option to invest at relatively beneficial terms later if their startup ends up taking off. This allows investors to spread their resources around and till the soil for more potential successes, while also allowing founders to strengthen some of their weaknesses and test out their ideas before jumping into the deeper end of the pool. Though like all aspects of this industry, there's also a lot of abuse that can stem from the often highly imbalanced distribution of resources, knowledge, and connections. Many successful founders attribute much of their eventual success to early investors who saw potential in them and their ideas, while others 
cursed the fact that they fell in with advantage-taking sociopaths who lured them and other founders who didn't know any better into a situation in which the investor benefited greatly and they got taken for a ride. So to summarize, venture capital generally involves carving a company up into pieces and selling those pieces to entities that are willing to pay for them. This differs from other types of private financing in that most other types are primarily reserved for established companies with a proven track record and fairly knowable numbers, while venture capital is often for less proven or completely unproven companies that as a result are bigger risks but can also lead to massively larger payouts. This model of private equity is generally considered to have started, in its formal incarnation at least, just after World War II, when a professor at Harvard named Georges Doriot founded the American Research and Development Corporation, or ARDC, in 1946, as a fund through which he could invest in companies and technologies that emerged and came of age during the war, and which were founded and or run by veterans. Many of their early investments were in speculative technologies, like their very first investment, in a company that was doing research into whether they might be able to use x-rays to treat cancer. Their first big success story, though, stemmed from a $70,000 investment they made in 1957 in a then-small technology company called Digital Equipment Corporation, which nine years later, in 1966, turned their $70,000 into $38 million. The company in question, by the way, was an early computer hardware and software company that made products that were the most popular of their kind between the age of the mainframe and the age of the personal computer, before being bought up in the late 90s by Compaq, which itself later merged with Hewlett-Packard. ARDC itself was eventually merged with a company called Textron, which is still listed on the New York Stock Exchange today, and which started its life as a textiles company focusing on then-new synthetic yarns, segued into parachutes during the war, and then bought up gobs of other companies post-war, eventually expanding to have its fingers in everything from helicopter, fighter jet, and unmanned drone production, to tractors, golf carts, and plastic fuel systems for cars. Part of what made ARDC novel, in addition to its approach, investing in early-phase companies, which wasn't at all common at that point, was that they invited investors that were not governments or wealthy families to participate, which opened up new types of speculation, new types of focus, investments made available for companies doing things that were not the wheelhouse of moneyed dynasties or government entities, and new types of wealth-generating potential for people with different points of view. This rebalancing was amplified when the gravity of the venture capital world shifted from the Harvard-centric Massachusetts economists and barons to the engineers who had moved out west to California to plant their stake in the burgeoning computing boom that was churning along beneath the surface of general public knowledge in the 60s and 70s. Fairchild Semiconductor was founded in San Jose, California in 1957, spun off from a company called Fairchild Camera and Instrument, to focus on the production of transistors and integrated circuits, which were the new hotness at the time. Fairchild Semiconductor was founded by a group that were sometimes called the Traitorous Eight, because they left a, by all accounts, fairly abusive visionary boss named William Shockley, who founded Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory in Mountain View, California in 1956. Shockley hired a bunch of his most promising students to work for him because none of his colleagues could stand him, and eight of them left after working for him for a while to hang their own shingle, which they were able to do as a result of the support of Sherman Fairchild, who founded the camera and instrument company that bore his name and who saw potential in the idea of making silicon transistors to replace the germanium 
based models that were far more commonly used at the time. This investment, quite unusual for back then, because the eight brought him what amounted to a startup idea rather than a fully functioning company and asked him to invest in it in exchange for equity, sort of became the financial and technological foundation for what became known as Silicon Valley. The emergence of this type of fundamental computing hardware led to the emergence of new types of more powerful and consumer-grade computers, and the use of this funding model informed future investment structures, including those that built many of today's largest and most powerful tech companies, but also increasingly companies of all types, whatever their industry. This model was further popularized by government incentives, including the Small Business Investment Act of 1958, which provided tax breaks to venture capital investors, followed by a 1979 act that allowed pension funds to invest some of their resources in venture capital bets, which brought a torrent of new money into the startup funding space. That was followed by a capital gains tax reduction in 1981 called the Economic Recovery Tax of 1981, which reduced the tax on income made from these sorts of investments from 28% to 20%, which made this investment class more appealing than many other competing types of assets available at that time. This sequence of events led to a flood of resources into venture capital right as the personal computer market was hitting its stride in the late 80s and early 90s, and it further compounded as the early internet arrived, culminating in the now-famous dot-com bubble that burst in 2001 and 2002, a bubble that is thought to have happened in part because of enthusiasm for this asset class and the increasingly perceived sexiness of venture capital for people with wealth of any kind. So not just people with business knowledge who could make an investment and then help the company do well as a result of their connection with that company. People with money from other sources were putting money into just about any available investment, and all those resources led to bad business habits, increased instances of outright grift, and ballooning prices, salaries, and valuations that were wildly out of proportion and out of touch with reality. In the years since, the world of venture capital has recalibrated and formalized, becoming a little more integrated with the rest of the private equity world, a little more structured, in the sense that there are fewer transparently crooked schemes and more checks on who does what, and a broader acceptance of this method of investing, alongside other, less risky, potentially lower payout asset classes. That's how things generally look, at least. There have been hints over the past decade or so, in particular, with the emergence of smartphones and the evolution of the app economy into the more blended online-offline world that we live in today, that there could be another bubble on the horizon, that well-intentioned policies like the JOBS Act, an acronym for Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, passed under the Obama administration and intended to allow normal people without investment backgrounds to get in on the startup investment action through crowdfunding and similar mechanisms, could have been unfair to smaller startups may not have included enough provisions to protect smaller individual investors, and might therefore expose more people to fraud, especially via call center-centric, so-called boiler room-style investor outreach efforts, and all of this in an effort to create more jobs by helping more startups get to the point where they can afford to hire people. Looping back around to that New Yorker piece, which asks, in the headline, whether venture capital is worth the risk, we find a situation in which this type of investment model has arguably done a hell of a lot of good, especially for the United States economy, and especially in terms of the technologies that we now take for granted. 
Everything from personal computers to smartphones to the software services that allow us to engage in e-commerce, communicate with each other using short, whimsical videos, and video chats that we can engage in with our loved ones. These technologies didn't all emerge from the U.S. venture capital-funded tech ecosystem, of course, but many of the companies that developed these innovations are in some way spiritual successors of that model of funding, that style of development, and or those precursor inventions and systems. That's true, too, though, of many of the varied and compounding problems we face as a species, including the propaganda and false news-spreading capabilities that we all now have, the government rivaling powers some of the massive corporations in this industry wield, and the somewhat more niche but still quite significant issues that have cropped up due to the emergence of the gig economy, the loss of jobs, the reduction of employee benefits overall, and to the fewer and fewer remaining actual employees, the overall lowering of wages and persistent job insecurity. Atop these more foundational problems, we also find ourselves struggling with issues related to data mining and privacy invasion, monopolistic behaviors and abuses, and the enthusiastic inflation of hype cycles that can leave large populations of people holding the bill, while a few well-positioned insiders walk away with massive paydays and barely dented reputations. This New Yorker piece starts out with a fascinating proposal that venture capital's history should actually trace back to the age of whaling ships and well-moneyed investors funding risky whale-oil-seeking ventures, followed by a fairly concise but also fairly brutal rundown of our current venture capital-funded situation. Quoting from that article, quote, A marriage between social enlightenment and manic growth defines the business of the past decade. Venture capitalists, having helped officiate the ceremony, often find themselves in awkward standing when the marriage falls apart. In the fall, we work. A venture-founded office rental company tried to enter the public markets with a $47 billion valuation and the pixie dust of world-changing rhetoric, only to postpone the IPO indefinitely when the valuation dropped by about 75%, and its lion-haired CEO resigned amidst disturbing revelations about his management style. Before that, there was Theranos, the fraudulent blood testing company, which, despite the absence of evidence that it could do what it promised, raised a mint in venture capital funding. Then, on the basis of that, hundreds of millions more. And Juicero, which, before the company's abrupt shutdown in 2017, had raised $118 million for $700 Wi-Fi-enabled squeezers of juice packets. Last week, news broke that Zumi, a startup whose business centered on pizza par-baked by robots, then loaded into delivery trucks filled with ovens that finished each pie en route to its destination, had been compelled to lay off more than half its employees because SoftBank's venture capital arm, which had already invested $375 million in the company, had backed away from further funding, wanted Zumi to pursue more aggressive, quote, global domination, end quote, in its pizza craft. The startup, which despite its robust funding, delivered pizza to only a small portion of the San Francisco Bay Area, is pivoting its business to, quote, compostable molded fiber packaging, double end quote. That rhetoric of world-changing and of globe-conquering ambition is not at all unusual in this space. People building photo apps are trained by this industry to at least claim that they believe their Instagram also ran will change the world will dent the universe, because if they don't at least seem to have such lofty ambitions, very often they'll be left out of the funding universe that has been built around these sorts of ventures and these sorts of claims. 
In other words, the startup world has been fueled by a model that has instilled a 10x or go-home mentality for so long that the way we invent things, the way we talk about things, the way we perceive things, both things we make and the types of ambitions we have, have shifted as that funding model has shifted. Like with so many aspects of the world we live in, the incentives that are in place here are wildly beneficial for certain outcomes, but almost certainly harmful for most other possible types of outcome, very much including some of the people involved and the other industries that are connected to the broader world of tech, which in today's world is essentially every industry, from the bottom to the top, from local markets to national governments to global metanational organizations. Many of the downsides here are the result of the same issues that plague folks who get an education in law or medicine, intending to go out and save the world with the best of ambitions, but who are then forced to work for law firms that they hate or within medical systems that suck because they cannot afford to do anything else. The debt that they accrued along the way requires that they sell out some of their ambitions in order to pay the rent. When the model funding your startup necessitates that you IPO, get acquired, or otherwise inflate your perceived value tenfold minimum within a relatively short period of time, that opens a lot of doors because the surge in money that you suddenly have access to allows you to make serious investments. Hiring a bunch of new people, getting a snazzy office, and upgrading all of your infrastructure. But it also substantially limits your options moving forward because you have to pay the piper. You need to be a good investment for the people who forwarded you that money because you are basically like a house that they bought with the intent to flip. Your ideological ambitions are thenceforth only valuable if they increase the marketability of your product. Now that said, this state of affairs is neither inherently good nor inherently bad. There are a lot of negative outcomes that we can now see more clearly to this particular approach of funding, innovation, and things that seem to be innovation, but the alternatives also have their downsides. Funding models that stem from government entities, for instance, have certainly been shown to work but they can also be bogged down in regulatory hurdles, bureaucracy, and the weather-like shifts of power in democratic societies. The internet happened because of government funding, but everything built atop that initial idea was mostly developed by private enterprise. IBM became massive and powerful because of government patronage, but it also kind of stomped around and kept viable competitors from emerging as a consequence of that reliable favor from up top whether or not that favor reflected their actual capabilities and deservingness of that money on the ground. The other option, of course, is to not provide simple mechanisms via which to fund startups at all, through government or private interests. This can incentivize founders to build sustainable businesses, companies that make money out of the gate, and which are therefore more likely to become self-sustaining, requiring no outside investment. But this also leaves such companies unable to scale quickly, and in the world of tech in particular, it leaves people with good ideas with few means of getting their hands on the equipment and other resources that they need to test their concepts or launch their product. Something that you could argue would be wonderful for the space, because we'd have fewer nonsense products on the market, but it's also fair to argue that many of our biggest and most beloved products and services would not exist, or at the very least, not at their current scale, without that upfront investment capital. That latter point is additionally important today, a moment in time in which the world is massively globalized, in the sense that our economies are entangled with each other in myriad ways. And this is true online in particular, but also in on-the-ground markets that allow us to use the internet to tap into international economies more generally. Not having the means of infusing young companies with cash would leave such companies almost completely unable to compete 
with their international peers in the same space that do have access to some kind of funding. Part of why the U.S. was able to outcompete the rest of the world with so many contemporary technologies up until just very recently was that this very loose model was in place. And the incentives that plague us also pushed such investments into hyperdrive, providing startups and founders with the resources that they needed far more frequently than had been the case elsewhere. A true double-edged sword, as the very economic and intellectual property weapon that has allowed the U.S. to claim dominance in so many spaces is also cutting us pretty bad right now in some very delicate areas. The absolute best balance, of course, will almost certainly be somewhere in between those three extreme models. The top-down government-funded model, the loosey-goosey private equity-funded model, and the highly regulated to the point where funding is next to impossible model. The right triangulation is tricky, though, as we are prone to overcorrecting when something doesn't work out perfectly, and because the right solution will likely be different for every single culture, every single economy, and every single moment in time. It'll require correcting as variables change, and the relevant variables here are many and ever-changing. It's possible that in the coming years we will see blended models that take some of the best elements from each dynamic and merge them to create hybrid options that could help ameliorate some of the worst downsides and perk up some of a particular economy's existing weaknesses. It's thinkable, for instance, to imagine a situation in which many of the services currently provided by accelerator programs here in the U.S., are instead provided by government entities, with crowdfunded public platforms available once entrepreneurs have learned the fundamentals and met some people who are further along than them, alongside options to tap into government coffers or to make deals with private equity interests, but from a position of more equal relative power because of the different options available and because of the education and connections that they've acquired as part of those freely available public accelerator programs. Such alternatives would come with their own downsides, though, and will likely never land on a situation that makes everyone happy, and which allows all types of companies and all types of founders to compete on equal footing with their local and international peers. It probably is possible to dampen the negative consequences that we're seeing around the world and across the board from the current methods being applied, though, by increasing the consequences for bad behavior within this space and upping the risk for venture capitalists who currently, despite the existing risks inherent in what they do, have actually built themselves a nice little infrastructural buffer that almost always ensures they will be favored and protected when the chips are down, and will generally be the most richly rewarded beneficiaries when things go well. Whatever path or combination of paths we choose, part of what will help us figure out what should come next is separating the reality of these industries from the on-screen portrayals, like those that we see in popular culture, that romanticize or sociopathize moneylenders and founders, or those that turn the event into a reality TV show, optimized more for emotionally engaging consumption than for anything close to the stakes that are played for in real life. book that I'd like to recommend today is actually optimally consumed as an audiobook. I'm actually not certain if there is a print version of this book, but it's called How to Listen to and Understand Great Music, and this is one of the Great Courses series. So it's something that's available through several different mechanisms. There are multiple different ways to get this, but it is definitely worth your time. What it encompasses is something like 48 different courses. Each episode, I want to say, an hour to an hour and a half a piece 
And each episode, the host or author, the Professor Robert Greenberg, presents what is essentially a course on understanding quite old up to relatively modern classical Western music. And this is something that I knew a little bit about going in, but definitely not to the extent that I understand it now, having listened to the entire course. It's very thorough, it's very engaging, the professor himself is often hilarious, but definitely keeps you engaged and knows his stuff as well. And the audio component of it is fairly important here because you actually go through and listen to these different types of music to better understand what you're being taught along the way. So if you're keen to learn more about what we might broadly call traditional classical music and the history that underpins some of that music, but also what goes into the music, what to listen for, why it is so beloved by so many people, consider picking up How to Listen to and Understand Great Music by Professor Robert Greenberg. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find some of my other publications, my other work, at exilelifestyle.com, brainlenses.com, and askcolin.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and most of the others. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.